Father, we, we humbly bow in your presence, and we thank you for being among us, Father. We love and adore you. You are the God, the only true and living God, our creator and life sustainer in whom we live and move and have our very being. And Father, we, we are here to give you glory and honor that you so deserve. Father, this morning, we want to search your word. We want to learn what you want us to know. We want to be your servants and to, to do your will in our life and in this world until we come to meet you. So, Father, we, we pray at this time that your Holy Spirit will be among us. We pray that you will open up the word and help us to understand it just as if Jesus was here teaching it to us today. And then may we find those words of his as an application to our life today. And we praise you and thank you for everything that you do. And it's in our Savior, Jesus' dear name, that we ask these things. Amen. All right. Parable of Jesus, the vineyard and the wicked tenants. You know what else I, I named it? Also known as stink berries. The parable of the stink berries. Say how you get that. We're going to find out here in a minute. We're going to get there. But we're, we're just now starting into summer. You know, last week we hit where it said summer officially started and runs until September. And I don't know. I guess it's okay for this to ask for a show of hands. But how many people like to grow things? Gardens, flowers, anything outside. And watch it grow and, and all of that. Well, when you do, if you're like me, you know, Mark told me this morning when I got here, the first thing he said was, you might want to check your garden when you get home because I walked out on the porch, I shut the door, and when the door slammed, two bucks jumped over your fence from out of the garden area into the cornfield and ran up to the woods. Now, you put a fence up around there so that they're not supposed to get in, but they can jump even that six-foot fence and went over it. But whenever you grow things, whenever, whether it's beautiful flowers or a nice yard, or if you're looking for tomatoes and corn and cucumbers, what do you do? I mean, you spend a lot of time. You, you get the soil ready, you fertilize it a little bit, you plant them, and you watch those babies grow. But the whole purpose is not just for them to start to grow and then wither away and, and die into nothing, is it? You want some fruit out of there. You want those nice, delicious tomatoes, cucumbers, watermelon, and cantaloupe, zucchini, whatever it is you like. You grow that so that it'll bear fruit and that it will, will bring you something that's enjoyment. Well, you know, the same thing happens with the Lord, and that's what we're going to talk about today. We don't grow those things for nothing. Um, Jesus, it's his last couple of days on the earth. And if you want to turn with me to the book of Mark, we're going to start our parables in chapter 12, but we're going to start with chapter 11 to set up the whole scene of what's going on. And, and I think it's very pertinent. It just it applies to us today just as it did back then. And, you know, you can tolerate something not bearing fruit in a year and just thinks, oh, that's all right. But what happens is whatever it is that you like and say, I want to use something like blackberries, for instance. You've got some blackberry plants that, that you've got out there, and 
three years in a row, it hasn't bore you any fruit, that every year it just kind of comes up and does nothing. What do you do? You cut it down, don't you? I tell you, that's what my father-in-law did. Two, you know, for two years, he had some that really didn't bear any fruit. He told me during the winter, he said, this year, if it comes up and it doesn't do anything, and he gave that little thumbs down sign, and he said, it's gone. It's going to be gone. I'll put something else there that's going to bear some fruit. Oh, keep that in mind, things. We study this parable. So we get in here to, to chapter 11, and, and I really want us to become a part of this today, okay? I want you to imagine that, that Jesus is here speaking these exact words to us because these are his words. And so just imagine and put yourself in there that he's explaining this story to you and, and just let it wrap yourself around it. And uh, he's riding in. It's the last week. He's going to be getting ready to go to the cross. And it says there in verse 5 that he rides in. And the people are shouting and everything. And in verse 9, Hosanna. Hosanna, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord and the kingdom of our father David. Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And then verse 11 says this. I mean, they've had all that excitement and he rides in on the colt. And then it says that Jesus, as he went into Jerusalem, that then he went into the temple. And it says that he looked around at all the things for the hour was already late and then he went from there to Bethany that night with the twelve and those words rang heavy on me you know how sometimes you've read passages over and over and each time something different will stick out to you this time what stuck out to me was it says that he stopped and went into the temple and he looked all around I want you to think, he's rode in. These same fickle people who was screaming, Hosanna in the highest, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord and our father David's lineage. And here comes the king. Do you know in just a couple of days they're going to be shouting, crucify him, crucify him, give us Barabbas. We don't want this guy. With all of what's getting ready to take place in mind, and Jesus arrives in his last time in Jerusalem, he enters into the temple, and what stuck out to me was it says he looked all around. He got in there, and he took a moment to just look around. And you know, here's what he would have saw. As you go in, and you pass through the courtyard, and there you go through the next gate. And that's the gate where the priests begin to do their work. You know, he's our high priest. But you walk in there, there's a thing that's called the sea. But it's a brazen laver. It's about a five-foot circle. And it's got water in it. And it's where the priests, whenever they would get ready to perform their duties, that they would go and that they would wash in that brazen laver to cleanse them and separate them unto God. That's kind of what baptism represents, isn't it? It, it, it's actually where we have made that confession of faith and it separates us now as God's people into him. So he looks at that and sees that this is supposed to mean that these people are supposed to be separated unto me. They're my people. Then he would see the altar over there, the brazen altar. And that's where those perfect little lambs 
would be offered upon the altar for the sins of the people each year until he came and rolled away the sins for a year because the blood of bulls and goats and lambs couldn't take away the sin of the world, but only the Savior, the Son of God, could. And they was a representation of him leading up to this very moment. And he sees that altar that represents what he is getting ready to do, to be the ultimate sacrifice as the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And he walks around and he sees the temple building itself. And you know there's two sections in there. You've got the holy place and then you've got the holy of holies. And in that holy place, you've got some things like a table that's got showbread on it. The word showbread actually means faces. It's panim. It's, it's the table of faces and what it is. It, it's the reflection of who and what Jesus was to be. What did he say in John 6? I am the bread of life that's come down to you. So that table of bread represented his bread of life that he comes. The menorah. The oil lights. Did you know that the light inside the temple was not supposed to ever go out? It was attended to by a priest who had a priestly duty twice a day, morning and evening, to go in to inspect the wicks, to put the oil in the basin, to make sure that the light of the temple did not go out. Jesus is the light of the world, isn't he? Are we his priests now? Are we a kingdom of priests? We should be attending morning and night that the light of the world doesn't go out. That that light of the world, we need to be the, the, the candlestick that never goes out, that portrays Jesus. And he looks, and that light was to represent him. You know, in, in uh, Revelation chapter 1, when it tells you what God wanted us to know about his son, Jesus Christ, it says that in that vision that John had, and he was the one who walked among the candlesticks. And it tells you at the end of that chapter, it says, here is what that means. The candlesticks represents the churches. But the church is us. The building is just the place. We are the church. You are the body of Christ. We are the ones. The church is ecclesia. It means to be called out from the world and separated like that labor does into the kingdom of God. And now we are the light of the world and it's not supposed to ever go out. We are supposed to attend to it morning and night and make sure that his light never goes out. Whatever it takes, it comes back. And he says, you do that. And if you don't, if you fail, I will come and snuff out the candlestick. So we've got a great responsibility in that. And then as he looks around the, the temple even a little more, you would see a veil, a huge veil. It separated that holy place from the holy of holies, the place where God actually was. That veil represents the separation that sin makes between us and God that had separated us from that. And only one time a year could the high priest go in there with that blood of the lamb and place it upon the next thing that you would see in there, which is the Ark of the Covenant of God that represents Jesus Christ. And inside that Ark of the Covenant, you've got the two angels, the cherubims that would sit upon it. They represent God's justice and righteousness. 
And when that high priest would take that blood and lay it on the table of mercy before that, asking for God's mercy through that, God's righteousness and justice looks upon the blood of the Lamb and says, I am now just and right to forgive you of your sins. And I can now have fellowship with you because of that. And so he sees all of this and that veil in just a couple of days when Jesus shouts those words, Tetelestai, which means it is finished, when he had spent three hours being judged on the cross in darkness for our sins, when the light came back and he said, it is finished. I have completed what I was sent to do with my mission and it is completed. And when he said it is finished, thunder rolled and the earthquake and the veil that separated the holy of holies from us, that the sin that had separated us from God, that veil that represented that was tore in half from top to bottom because of that sacrifice that he had made. And this is what Jesus sees when it says that he came into the temple area and he looked around. And all of this was to represent him to the people. But then it says something else. It went, he saw something else as he looked around that temple. He went out then, but what else he saw we're going to find in a minute. And I want you to know that it upset him greatly. That whenever he got ready to leave with the temple that night, that his heart was aching and it was piercing. And the things that must have happened. And we get the first clue of what's going on as they leave and get ready to separate for the night. That it says that he left the temple with his heart after that and they see a fig tree. And there's this fig tree in, in Mark chapter 11 that it has blooms the next day they're coming and there's all of these leaves on the tree which represents maturity and growth and that it should have been bearing fruit and jesus goes up to that tree because it says he was hungry and he went to the tree and he looked and that fig tree didn't bear any fruit and it made him upset within his soul because this is going to be a representation of the people of God, Israel. And he says, Cursed are you because you have borne no fruit. No man shall eat of you any longer. And they left. And they ended up going back uh, to Jerusalem. And Jesus had, had, had done that. He had expected fruit. Isn't that what we do when we have our gardens? And we expect the fruit. We're waiting on it. And when we go there, he didn't find it. And he said, you're not in season, I guess. And he cursed it. You know, Israel, the church today, what about us in our lives? Are we bearing fruit? Or do we have just a bunch of pretty leaves and we, we make a good facade out in front of everybody? But inside, as the fruit inspector comes up and he expected to find some fruit from life, does he find it barren? Is, is our nation barren? Is our churches barren? Is our lives barren? And he, the warning is, I can take it away from you. What do you got? Let no one eat from you again evermore because you didn't bear fruit. So then, 
Your all leaves and no fruit was the moral, the false appearance. You, you can put on a show, but the one who walks in and among the candlesticks that it says there in Revelation 1, says he knows what's going on and as he walks through. And he, you can fool the people, but you can't fool the Lord. And he says to this tree, which is beginning to point to us what he's thinking of as he's going to the cross, let no one eat from you ever again. And that's what's really going to happen to Israel. So then we keep moving in verse 15 of chapter 11, if you're following along. And they had arrived back in Jerusalem again from last night's visit at the temple. And that still eating away at him. What else he saw besides just the things of the temple. And he looks around at what his house has become. And what the nation of Israel as God's client nation to the world has become. And the zeal of his father's house got ready to spring upon him, and it engulfs him now. He can't hold it back no more. And in verse 15, it says that he went straight to the temple, and he goes right on over to the tables where the money changers are. You know, that's what else he saw. He saw the things that were supposed to represent him to the people. But as he looked around, the people hadn't been reflecting him and God in the community. And they hadn't been worshiping. What they had done is changed it into a den of thieves. The money changers was there. And they were all set up. And they were, they were running the show. And you can't do this unless you pay us this. And it engulfed him in the zeal of his father's house. And I want you to know something right now. It says that when they were, did, he went over to the table where they're selling the doves. And they had their coins set up. And it says that he drove them out, those who were buying and selling. I want to tell you something right now. Jesus wasn't no wimp. He wasn't no sissy, effeminate guy like these paintings make him out to be. Those people have got the wrong image of what they want to portray to you. I want you to know that Jesus Christ was a man's man. Amen. He was... He was a carpenter's son. His entire life, he was hauling logs and he was building and he was placing them beams up there for his father to put together and hold them for him. And he was a man. And whenever he got up there and saw what they were doing to his father's house, it says, drove them out. Oh, no. They were being nice with what they said. The word for driving out is ekbalo. You know what ekbalo means? Ek means out from, just like the church is ek. Messiah, which means you're called out from the world into God's place. It means to, to do to be away from something. Balo is to thrust or throw like you do with a sword, a spear, or a ball. So what it says is, is that Jesus went up to them, grabbed them with those muscular arms, and he physically picked them up and followed them. He threw them out. He thrust them away. He wasn't no sissy. I want to ask you men something here. You got a business set up. You, you've got your table and your money and your doves. And somebody comes up and starts flipping your table over. What are you going to do? You're, you're, you're going to try to stop him from, from taking over your thing, aren't you? Not one man in there could stop him. It says that he started even ordering them that you couldn't carry anything through there. Whatever your wares were, he ordered them all out. He tossed them out. No one could stand up to him. Kind of gives you a little different idea of what the normal world thinks about Jesus and what they want to portray. Oh, you got to be naked, mushy. Oh, what would Jesus do? 
Oh, you're not being very Christ-like. Well, I want to tell you what Jesus would do. We just saw it. He had followed those who were disrespecting the house of God and, and taken it away. He didn't allow it. He tossed them out on their tails. And no one could stop him. And then it says, no wonder when that night came that Judas was going to betray him, he saw all this. He's been with the Lord. He didn't go by himself. He took not only chief priests and all of those with him, but who else? Roman soldiers. It was when Judas came, it was Roman soldiers that came with him armed because they've seen this man in the temple throwing people out on their ear and no one could stand up with him. And then in verse 17, he says, well, it says right before that, that through this, he didascoed them by doing what he did. That word didasco means to teach with authority something. So he taught them a lesson is what that word means. That, and that lesson was as he threw them out and he said this, verse 17. It is written, my father's house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you guys made it a den of thieves. And that word thief there is the word for bandit, which means that if you didn't apply, you didn't give them what they wanted when they come, that they would even use force to take from you what was necessary. And Jesus met that with like-minded stuff and tossed them out on their ear with his own kind of justice. And then all the rotten officials began to be angry, but look what it says. They didn't do anything, though. They had to go and plot what to do because they were afraid of him and afraid of the people because all the people said that he taught with what? Authority. They were amazed at the way he operated and did things. So now we go to the next day. Jesus and his disciples head back again to this temple. I mean, this is his last couple of days alive on the earth. Now they pass that fig tree again that they had passed yesterday, you know, the one that had all leaves but no fruit on it. And as he, they do, it was withered. It says, they remembered that Jesus had said, no one will eat from you again. And as they walk by, Peter looks over and, Lord, Lord, look, that tree that you cursed yesterday, it's withered. It's gone from the roots up. It's dried up. He said, yeah, I want to tell you something. You need to bear fruit. And also this. You need to believe in me and the power of God. And whenever you ask for things in prayer, just like I asked on that, and you believe and you're doing it in the will of God, know that you can do it. It will be granted unto you. Prayer is the powerful force that we have as a weapon and as an aid and as a foundation for our lives. And it says, if you believe and you pray it, know that God can do it and that he will. And he says this, though. He says also, I want you to know, too, that a big part of it's forgiveness. And so before your prayer is going to be answered, before that power is going to be enacted, You've got to have no walks with somebody, and if you're mad, you've got to forgive them because he wants us to be humble in that way. Everything is God's hand to answer and to deal with, not ours. 
Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. It's not within us to deal that out, okay? So he says, you always turn that over to God and let him have it. He'll do a much better job than you will, I guarantee you. He will handle that. And he says, you don't let that. I always tell people, and, and for those who haven't heard it, please grab a hold of this. You are only responsible for you before God. You are not responsible for anyone else. You cannot make anyone else like you, love you, do what you want them to do, be what you want them to be, say what you want them to say, think about you or anything else that you're trying to tell them about the way you want them to. They're going to do what they want to do. So you turn them over to God you worry about you because you're the only one that you have control of. Amen. So you worry about you and your actions and your ability before God. You let God handle everything else. And he says, when you do that with a forgiving heart, then the power of God is enacted upon your prayers. And you can he will answer you in a big way. And so now we're going to get ready to get to the lesson, though, that he wants his disciples to learn. The big lesson from that tree is, man, you guys got to bear fruit. I'm getting ready to be gone, and you need to bear fruit in your lives. And that's what he wants us to, because we're his ambassadors, it says. Did you realize how high an honor being an ambassador is for somebody? If you are an ambassador for a nation to another nation or another people, that is one of the highest levels that there is of honor in your country from your leadership. The Lord has said that we are his ambassadors to this world. That's the role that you have. So now they pass that fig tree. They've learned this lesson. They're going back to the temple again. And those chief priests and scribes that were mad at him yesterday when he ekbottled all these people out of there, they come up to him. And they've been talking a little bit. And you know what they say? They, they come up to him and say, hey, we want to know something. And what they're really saying is, is we're supposed to be in charge. That's what they're, they're trying to say. He said, by whose authority or by what, what authority or who gave you permission to go around acting like you did and upsetting our apple cart? Who gave you permission to do that? By what authority? We're supposed to be the ones. Is what he's saying is, you don't got any authority except what God hands out. But what Jesus tells them, he says, I'm going to give you a little story before I tell you. And he tells in John's baptism, who was it, of, of God or man or not? And they say, ooh, they start thinking he's got us in a trap. We really can't answer that because if we say it's from God, he'll say, well, why didn't you believe it? If we say that it wasn't from God, all the people's going to come against us because they knew John was from God. So they said, we can't answer you. Jesus said, that's right. Neither am I going to tell you. If you ain't already figured out by whose authority I'm doing this, then it's already too late for you. So I'm not going to tell you either. So they keep on going, and uh, they're getting ready to be removed as God's client nation to the world for not uh, bearing fruit. So now, if you got your Bibles, turn to page chapter 12. I'm going, to, I'm going to read it from mine. Turn your page chapter 12. Here's the lesson. And now just think with all of this history and with all of this setting the stage, now Jesus comes and the message that he wants his disciples the people in the temple and the leaders of the land. Here's what he wants them to hear and listen to if you're ready. Chapter 12, verse 1, he says this. He began to speak to them in parables. And I want you to know something. People think parables 
are, you know, oh, it's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Well, yeah, it means to lay aside by something. Parabole is what it is, not ek. Ekbalo, bole is a part of that. It means to lay something beside something, to toss it beside a pair means beside us. So it, it's basically, I'm laying something that you can understand so next to something that you don't understand so that you might be able to see it. And so he taught him in this parable saying, a man planted a vineyard, and he set a hedge about it. You know what a hedge is? Yeah, sticker bushes too, usually. You know what it's for? Protection. Protection, isn't it? It's like a fence. It's like their fence to keep things out. I hope it's higher than the deers can jump. But they set a hedge around this place. A man had a vineyard. And he dug a place for the wine vat. And he built a tower. You know what that is? That's a watchtower. That's, again, protection. It's oversight. It's to, to have a warning of anything coming. And he says, he's done all of this. And then he leased it out to some vine dressers. And then he went to a far country. And now, when it came vintage time, you're ready for the harvest. You're expecting something, just like when we plant. You're expecting a, a harvest. And so at vintage time, he sent one of his servants over there to those that he had leased it out to. That he might receive some of the what? Fruit. Fruit. That's what, that's what he's expecting from us. Fruit. From the fruit of the vineyard, from the vine dressers, but they took that servant and they beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And again, it says that the man that owned the vineyard sent another servant, but this one it threw stones at it. It actually says that it crushed his head a little bit, uh, and boy, he had a real tough time with it. And they sent him away shamefully treated. And again, he sent another, and they killed, and many others beating some and killing some. And therefore, the only thing that this owner of the vineyard had left was his only son. And he said, alas, I'm going to send him there saying, they will respect my son, won't they? But these vine dressers, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and they killed him and they cast him out of the vineyard. And therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do? So now Jesus is saying, here's the parable. He's, he sent all kinds. He prepared everything. He's done everything for you. And look at what the, the ungrateful vine dressers did. They killed him. They beat him. And then even his own son, they killed and tossed out to the side. What would you expect the landowner to do after all of these things? And you can imagine their reactions. It would be like that lousy so-and-so. What, what will happen to their, what will the owner do? It says he will destroy the vine dressers, and he's going to give the vineyard to others. Have you never read this scripture that the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief corner? And this was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. This is Passover. This is the week of the Lamb. And that Hosanna that they were singing was, was from the song of the Passover. This is a part of that song, the stone which the builders rejected. So these folks, he's talking right at them. They sought to lay hands on him, but they feared the multitude because they knew that he had spoken this parable against them. 
they now realize that they are the builders who are rejecting the cornerstone, the son of the landowner. They were wrapped up in this story until the end, and then they realized it was a condemnation to them. How did they know? You got your Bibles turned to Isaiah chapter 5. Because Jesus right here is talking from Isaiah chapter 5 whenever he's talking. And so all of a sudden they realize what Jesus is saying to them. In Isaiah chapter 5 it says this. Now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard. You see, this is the same story. And it's on a very fruitful hill. You see what it's supposed to be? A fruitful hill. And he dug it up. He cleared out the stones. He planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in the midst and he made a wine press in it. And he expected, just like us, he expected it to bring forth good grapes. But it brought forth wild grapes. And oh, now you inhabitants of Israel and Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, please, between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done to my vineyard that I have not done for it? Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? Please now tell me, what should I do with my vineyard? He said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take away its hedge. And it will be burned. I'm going to break down its wall and it will be trampled and I will lay it waste. And it shall not be pruned anymore or dug. And there will be briars and thorns that's going to come up. And I will also command the clouds that they rain no more on it. And then he gives them the moral of the story, the application. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. That's the nation. And his pleasant plant, the choice vines that he planted, they are the people of Judah. That's his pleasant plant. He looked for justice, but behold, there was only oppression. He looked for the fruits of righteousness from you, but behold, a cry for help. Oh, and then he goes on, and he'll go on down there in verse uh, 13, that you're going to go into captivity and... My honorable men are going to be famished. In other words, those who say they represent me are hungry. They don't have the bread of life in them. Uh, we're not supposed to live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So if you're famished, you don't have any of that word growing in your life. You are famished and starved because you are not wrapped up in the word. And then it says, your multitude will be dried up with thirst. That water of life is no more flowing from out of you. And then Sheol, or hell, is going to enlarge itself and open its mouth beyond measure. And all of your glory and your multitude and your pomp and your circumstances is all going to be laid to waste. And it's all going to be swallowed up into the pits of hell. And so Jesus is saying this to him. What more could I have done for you, Israel? I planted you on a fruitful hill. I took away the stones. You know what stones are? Obstacles. Any of the obstacles that would have been in your way to have had the chance to bring forth fruit, I took them out of the way. 
I planted only choice vines. I selected you guys. I, I dug. I watered. I fertilized. I protected. I put the hedge around you. I built a watchtower to warn you. If you got my word, you can see the warnings of when things are coming. I've done every, what more could I have done? But when I come and I visit you, just like the fig tree, I come and I visit and I look at my people and I look around the temple and I see what it should be with the laborer and the altar, the holy of holies. But I look at what it is and it's a den of thieves. I'm going to lay you waste. I'm going to remove your protection. I'm going to take the hedge down. I'm going to remove the watchtower. It's briars and thorns are growing to grow up. You remember in the parable of the sower? Do you remember in Genesis chapter 3? Do you remember what briars and brambles are? It's sin. It's worldliness. It's the cares of this world that choke down. I'm going to turn you over to what you want to be because you, you're famished. You don't have my word in you. You're thirsty. You don't, you don't have the water of life flowing through your soul. That Holy Spirit that is coming out with water of life from your belly so that people can see it. You don't have any of this, so I'm going to remove your protection. I'm going to remove the watchtower. I'm going to stop with the rain and the blessings. You will no longer have those things, and soon you will be overrun by the world, and the world will own you. Yeah. And that's what Jesus was saying to them, and they knew it from this parable because that was Isaiah, and a few years later, Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon came and did exactly what Isaiah said. Jesus is now telling it to his people in Israel, and they are not listening. And in 40 years, Rome is going to come in and destroy the temple and their system, and God, as Jesus said, is going to turn over his client nation, his people, to someone else who might bear fruit. And since that time, they destroy all the records. They don't know who's a priest and who's of the tribe of Aaron and who's of this and that because he laid it desolate and took away their protection exactly like he said. Okay, where are we going with that for us today? You know what America is? God's client nation. What was this country established on? Word of God. They were Christians that come over here seeking freedom and a place to worship. And when they started minting their coins, it says what on it? No wonder they want to go to a digital coinage because this country is no longer God's country. They don't want to see that in God we trust every time they lay their hands upon a, on a bill or a coin. They don't want anything that has anything to do with God. Let's get rid of it. Let's go to something digital that you tap your phone on there or show a card that doesn't say anything about God. We, he, God says, I'm going to take it away from you and I'm going to give it to someone else who will bear fruit for me. And throughout the centuries, there's been client nations of God and they come and they go because God blesses them. He provides protection. He gives you fertilizers. He makes you a choice vine. He does everything for you. But what do the tenants do in return? Nothing. 
They want nothing to do. Pretty soon they want to take over the joint, don't they? Just like these scribes and Pharisees and chief priests. Who gives you the authority to come in here and tell us what to do? Well, my father does. But since you don't recognize him anymore, this is all going to be taken away from you. You think we kill the heir and we will now have the right to be the heir? No. He's going to lay you waste and give all of this to someone else. If Jesus was standing here today, he would be telling us the same parable, wouldn't he? And he'd be saying, America, what more could I have done for you? Church, what more could I have done? I put you in a fertile hill. Man, America is a nation that's been blessed with natural resources above measure. What more could I have done? I removed the stones. You know what? He's took care of all of our enemies so far, hasn't he? I removed the stones. I put you in a fertile place. I built a hedge around you. I protected you. It was me. I had my watchtower up there, and I'm looking out for you. But every vintage season, I come back looking for fruit. In this generation, I'm not seeing any fruit. I'm seeing fig trees. It looks, says they're a, they're a fig tree, but there ain't no figs on them. I see a nation that says, still on their coinage, one nation under God, but I don't see God reverenced everywhere. And it says that the last thing Jesus said was, there's the son, and we will kill the son and throw him outside. And they did that. He was crucified outside of the city. And then we will be the heirs to it. Let's get rid of the son. The last straw, America. What happened this last week that's been a buzz? Does anybody catch? Not only are they pulling down statues of all of these things, but what did somebody start this revolution on this week? Let's, uh, let's pull down all the statues of Jesus. Did you see that? Yes. Sean King, an uh, activist, put out a thing. Hey, statues of Jesus is just pictures of white supremacy. Where do you get that at? He's Middle Eastern. He said it's white European supremacy, and we need to pull down every statue, everything that represents Jesus, every cross, every painting, everything that represents that. You see, they're getting ready to get rid of the sun. And if we allow them to get rid of the sun from your client nation, the hedge is gone. Protection's gone. The watchtower's gone. Folks, it, it, we don't have to be militant, but all we have to do is be vocal. All we have to do is to, how do you change this? You, you toss your leaders out instead of letting them toss the sun out. And you get leaders that represent your morals and your views. So we need to be in solid prayer. We need to be the watchtower. We need to be the hedge of protection, not only for our lives and bear fruit in our lives. How do we, how do we gain ground? By sharing that gospel of Jesus Christ with those who don't know him. And when they come to Christ, there's another one now that has a voice to say to someone else, you need to know Jesus. 
We need to change the direction that this country is going with its morality and the way it is. And we need to bear fruit of the Spirit in the lives of people, in the lives of this nation. We demand that you no longer show the things that you show, do the things that you do in these clinics and all of these different places. You're not going to teach my kids in school about gender confusion and all of this kind of stuff. We are going to honor marriage for what it is. And when this country gets people that will bear fruit and take it to every place and be what it's supposed to be, then that hedge is going to stay, that watchtower is going to stay, and that vat that we expected fruit is going to be filled up with the fruits of the, this nation and the message of Christ. And it will bear the wine that it was supposed to be. We have to act now. you got to be just... Basically, we got to be who we were supposed to be. You were the chosen vine that I planted in the fertile hill. Be what you're supposed to be and bear fruit and make it go to everywhere. What was it a couple of weeks ago? My brother Ron right there was up here on, on our meditation. And it so struck my wife and I when he said, everybody always says, well, well we need for God to bless America. And he said, what about America blessing God? That's, we're supposed to be the choice vine. We're supposed to be his people. We're supposed to bear fruit and proclaim him. But when Jesus would look around, I'm sure he'd say, man, your republic, your leaders, and even some of my churches have become den of thieves. I'm so glad this one isn't. I think we're an exception to the rule rather than the norm. I think that everybody here, I'm sure, because I talk to you all the time, you love God, you love the Word of God, you are thirsty for it, but we live in a world that's not. And it's time that we get this message to the world and be what we're supposed to be, that choice to be. So I hope that you can see that from this parable and just feel that if Jesus was here today, what would he say? So as our worship team returns and, and uh, we close this out. I pray that God has enough patience with us and he keeps that hedge of protection and, and that this, this nation stays a quiet nation and that we are the light of the world taking his bread of life to folks. If you are not in Christ, we talked about it a little bit ago, but believe and be baptized. You've got to be born again, Jesus said, of the water and of the Spirit. He that believeth in the Son shall have eternal life. He that believeth not is already condemned or lost because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So do that. You're baptized into Christ, which separates you. That's your vocal claim that I am now changed in a new creature. And it, it sets you apart now into his kingdom. If you've not done that, today's the day of salvation. You need to do that today. There's no time to lose in this battle. And if you have, and you're here as a choice vine, oh, he's been pruning us, he's been fertilizing us, and it's time that we bear fruit. Let's tell everybody about it, and let's also demand that this country gets back to where its roots in this and to, to make this, this nation God's nation. In God we trust in your name. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for 
your word, which you said lives and abides forever. It's a living, breathing thing. It doesn't ever need to be amended. It doesn't need anybody else's added opinions to it. We take it for what it is and for what you said, and it's as applicable today as it was in the day that it was written because it was already in existence in eternity past before it was here. This is your word that is living and abiding forever. And so, Father, we pray that today that the Holy Spirit that is within us would make this lesson clear and powerful, that it begins with me and my life bearing fruit. But it begins with me humbling myself and saying, Man, I am a choice vine of God, hand planted in a fertile place to bear fruit for Him. We are His choice vine that He loves. May my life change, Father, and reflect you and your Son to be what it is supposed to be. And then may this body of Christ in this place, all of us join together as we do that. We are the choice vine in this community. And then as the communities around our country do that, the entire country becomes the vineyard of God again. And we pray, Father, for your patience. Let it go another year. You had another parable where it was said, we're going to cover this one day. There hadn't been fruit for two years, and the owner said, cut it down. But the, but the tenant said, no, I'm going to fertilize it again. I'm going to give it another chance to bear fruit. Let me do it again. And he gave it another chance. And so, Father, we're praying for that chance right now. We're praying that you allow us to try to fertilize and prune again and to turn this thing around for you. And we ask this, Father, and your blessings, because it's not easy. So we ask for your blessing, your help in this. In our life, in our families, in our churches, and in our communities. In Jesus' name, amen.